everyone, and welcome back to Until Saturday. I'm Nicole Auerbeck. I'm here with Chris Benini and Max Olson. So much to get into. It was a really newsy week in college football between the college football playoff and EA Sports, college football. Uh, lots of really good news. And then I think some major existential crises questions that we will get into about the future of the sport. Um, before we begin, though, be sure to follow this podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. Please help support our show by dropping a five-star review and ask us questions there. We'll, we'll answer them on the show. You can also um, leave us a voicemail on our Until Saturday phone line for future mailbags, 316-462-9852. Or when you see a prompt on theathletic.com, leave a question there and we will get to it. Uh, Chris, Max, hello. Chris, are you alive? You've had a busy week. Been a long day, you know, uh, staked out DFW Do you mean like, is this like an AI, Chris? Like, what do you mean? Are you alive? Well, he's, he's (laughs) was staking out a CFP meeting for like 12 hours. Yeah. And then had an EA sports headline on our site, like five hours later. So I'm just confirming. You love to see. Yeah. So I'm out. I'm at DFW. It was just me for a while. And then eventually uh, Eric Prisbill from on three showed up. And so did somebody from AP and like, I'm talking to the people around EA and the game to prepare the story. And I'm like, Hey, the CFP meeting is like about to get out any minute here. I may need to jump off this call and they may blow up the playoff any moment now. So, uh, a hectic couple of hours there, but lots of stuff to talk about. Some things fans are excited about some things. They are very much not excited about. And Max, as, ha- as Michael Howard. Scott would say that the timing of this podcast is, is nothing short of predominant. Yeah. This is good timing <laughs> for this one today. It is. It is. Um, so let's let's dive into the news. Let's start with the CFP conversation. We'll get into EA Sports in just a second. Um, there were two storylines we were tracking in the CFP this week. There was a board of managers meeting on Tuesday. So that's the president's. That's the highest governing board over the CFP. And essentially, the one thing that they were probably going to decide was whether or not they were tweaking the model from six and six to five and seven, six conference champions and six at large spots to five conference champions and seven at large. We have talked about this extensively on the show. It's kind of wild that this hasn't happened sooner. Um, what is ultimately the benefit of this is, is that there's an extra at large spot. It's not crazy, right? This isn't major. This is an adjustment because The Pac-12 was a power conference, and it is no longer. So part of the reason there were six conference champion spots were there were five power leagues, and then one spot for access for everybody else. Um, Max, I want to get your thoughts on this tweak as well. Um, Let's start with you. I think there's a lot of winners for this. So why do you think it happened? Why do you think it's going to be a good thing? Or do you think that six and six would have been better? Yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, as of today, we still don't really have a great sense of what what is the Oregon State, Washington State plan going to be, right? I mean, is it going to be teaming up with the Mountain in some way? Um, is it, you know, what, what kind of league are they going to put together here? So I think that going to five plus seven for now, you know, makes a ton of sense. And, uh, you know, I, I think... With the big picture conversations that are going around the actual future of the playoff beyond these next couple of years, um, I, 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 you know, I think st- sticking personally, I think sticking to five plus seven would be the right way to go for the rest of the decade. But 
Uh, clearly, Chris, we're, we're seeing that um, the folks in the SEC and the Big Ten uh, may be angling for a, a different approach here. It was very funny to go from one day, five plus seven is approved after two months of conversation. Then the very next day, eh, we may not even need five plus seven anymore. It may be seven plus whatever, seven plus seven, 10 plus four, who the heck knows? So yes, it's very college football, very college football play of itself to finally get something only to immediately change it, uh, potentially moving forward. So yes, we're going to have a 12 team playoff at least for two years. It's going to be five plus seven. It made the most sense. The commissioners recommended this back in November. The Pac-2 wanted to hold out for something. They ultimately didn't get anything out of it because there's nothing to give. You know, they, they were hoping to get some guaranteed revenues, governance, voting powers in 2026 and beyond. But but as other people had told me and Nicole, they haven't determined that for anybody yet. So they can't promise that to Oregon State and Washington State. And ultimately... We get where we need to go. An extra at-large spot does help those two because they're not eligible for a conference championship spot. So it ultimately came uh, to where it needed to be. Coming out of that meeting, Nicole and I in Houston at the national championship game, the presidents were pretty upset that they didn't pass five plus seven uh, at the time. Uh, they said they hoped it'd be done within a month, and it is done within about a month. So the interesting thing about this as well, when you asked about the Pac-12 proposal, I mean, they're doing whatever they can. I absolutely understand it. This this is a decision that had to be unanimous. So you did have everyone's attention if you wanted to propose and talk about other things. Uh, but like Chris said, there, there's no guarantees what the format and revenue is going to look like for 2026. We'll get to that in a second. So you can't really do that. And everyone in that room knows that Oregon State and Washington State are about to play Mountain West schedule for two years. It, yep. It's not going to be the caliber of a schedule and the eyeballs and the level of play um, that the power conference teams are going to have. So everyone understands what the position they're in, but they are also not going to just kind of be overly generous when money is at a premium here. Um, It is worth pointing out the PAC-2 schools do have uh, full revenue shares, power conference revenue shares, and voting power for the next two years. That didn't change. Um, And I'll also say that part of their pitch has been, I I just want to continue talking about this stuff because everyone sees what's happening with the ACC, feels a little precarious. So what happens there if you have teams that were power conference teams kind of floating around on their own or in the middle of different things or in between leagues? It is possible that they are not the only schools in this type of position moving forward. So we'll continue to track that. Um, but again, it, five and seven got approved. We're moving on with that for this fall. It's going to mean that the Penn States and the Ole Misses um, and a lot of those types of teams are going to Notre Dame access. for sure. Notre yeah. Dame. Yeah, Notre Dame. The weird part about this is people oh forgetting <laughs> that Notre Dame agreed to this model <laughs> two and a half yes. years ago. Yes. Pe- people who um, don't pay attention to college football just found out this week, apparently, that Notre Dame can't get a first round bye, which uh, we've I'm, known for three years. Guys, I'm pretty sure wasn't Jack Swarbrick on the committee that created the, the sure team? Was. Yes, sure was. So they were there from the beginning. Everyone, I remember everyone was acting like it was this big, um, like, sacrifice that Notre Dame was making for the betterment of the sport. In reality, it doesn't matter. Notre Dame fans are thrilled with this because they know they're not playing a conference championship game. Everyone who's getting a top four seed is playing an extra game. They're all playing one more game 
than Notre Dame. So they're totally fine. And most years, they're going to be in that five to eight range if they make the playoff. They'll be hosting games. Local economy is a boom. Home home field advantage. Like, it works out great for Notre Dame. It was like like nine and three Notre Dame with no conference title game. Like they're going to make it most of the time. This is that way record, better right? than the the four team model for them. Like they can make the playoff every year, every single year. And that's all they care about to preserve independence. So you have that. That's a huge win. Can't wait until regular sports fans uh, realize for the first time that the top four seeds um, also all have to be conference champions. So if it's like Alabama, Georgia, one, two in the rankings, and then George, like Alabama, Georgia's at number five, everyone's going to freak out. So can't wait for everyone to uh, revisit that. That was also previously decided two and a half years ago. Um, so that's the five and seven model that will take effect this fall. The much more interesting conversation happened with Wednesday's CFP meeting. This was the commissioners all meeting in person in Dallas all day. We had covered a lot in the lead up to this meeting about the different battles, the internal power struggle, um, about what people want, about the future of college football, uh, the size of the bracket, the makeup of the bracket, governance. So, Chris, let's start with you. You were in the DFW airport hallway, been there many times, all day. You actually talked to pretty much all of the commissioners afterwards. So what did we learn about these conversations? We expected them to be pretty contentious, and it sounds like they were cordial, but also hard conversations that needed to be had. Yeah, you know, we did a good job hyping up this meeting uh, beforehand, because then it lived up to the hype. It turned out to be a big thing. You and I, Nicole, had talked to a lot of people around various conferences, and they said, look, we don't know what the Big Ten and SEC want, and we hope they will tell us on Wednesday. We expect them to start to throw their weight around and try to create some changes. That's exactly what happened. So now 14 is on the table as a possible expansion. 16 is on the table, though it sounded like 14 got more serious play than 16 did. Automatic qualifiers, more of them on the table was talked about, meaning could be two or three or four automatic bids for SEC in the Big Ten, or maybe just the Power Four. Depends on what the size of the field is. And after all that, which, yes, by the way, the commissioners came out and talked to us. That happens like once out of every five of these that they're willing to talk. They were all willing to talk at this one. So they mostly seemed glad that they finally had the conversation that they had been putting off for a very long time. And so after all that, after talking to all them, Bill Hancock comes out and tells us they got a mo- about a month to do this. That's about how much time they have, because we had also reported that ESPN's getting kind of annoyed that this is dragging on, that they have agreed to general terms on a TV deal for a while now, and they may or may not pull their offer. It's mostly just a threat, I think. But Bill Hancock, for who always says no deadlines. We don't want to rush it. We want to get it right. He said, we need to get this done within a month. So I think that sets the tone for where everything is set. So yes, we may blow up the playoff again here and they've got about a month to figure it out after it took three years to get to this point. What what would, when you say blow up the playoff, who would that be? In, what would that be in service of Chris? It wouldn't be in service of this is for the good of all 10 conferences. I hate this. I hate the idea of a 14-team or a 16-team playoff. I was so on board with 12. You know, it really did feel like everybody sacrificed something to get something that was better for everybody. 
and the health of the sport. And then the, it, it really ac- was access for everybody. Access for access for everybody. Conference championships mattered. Uh, regular season mattered. It hit all the sweet spots. You do this, you give more automatic qualifiers. You you add more teams. It really devalues everything else. And the reason it's happening is because the conferences ripped each other apart, and now everybody's got sixteen to eighteen teams. And the SEC and the Big Ten realize they don't need unanimous votes to get things anymore in 2026 and beyond, and they want more. And I don't think it's a good thing for the health of college football. There's a couple of different things I want to hit on. One, how weird it is that they're trying to negotiate to get ESPN to pay for these first-round games for two years and that they had to make changes that were unanimous for the current contract while also trying to figure out a new contract that they decided they would just not roll over anything from and that they would start from scratch. So that's why you can have these conversations and people could essentially say, hey, majority of us or, hey, the SEC and the Big Ten, hey, we want this. You're either in or you're out for the new playoff. It's just a strange process of how you negotiate something, how you decide something. feels very college football that people in that room have already decided 12 is not going to serve the purposes of expansion, which we haven't even lived in the world with 12 yet. Yes. Preach. I, I find that mind-boggling. Like, for, for years now, we've been told that this is going to be better for college football. Everyone starts the season with access. You know, every group of five athlete, like, you can look and say, hey, if we have a great season, we have a chance to play for a national championship. We're going to have 30-something teams alive in November. We, we've had all of those conversations for years now. And now they're saying, well, that's not going to be good enough. We haven't even had it. We haven't even lived in this world. And it's so frustrating. And it is because these leagues got so big. Because if you're the Big Ten and you have 18 teams and you have Ohio State, Michigan, Penn State, Oregon, USC, you need multiple spots. You need as many spots as possible so that those teams can have a successful season and get to play for a national championship. And I think that that gets into this AQ conversation, which if the Big Ten and the SEC want three or four, you do naturally, I think, need to look at a larger bracket if they're taking up that many spots. So, so Chris, how would 14 be structured? Like, how, who would get buys? How would that work? Most likely, it would mean the top two seeds get buys instead of the top four seeds. And... You can probably guess that the SEC and Big Ten champion most years will get that, uh, get those one and two spots because that is normally. Can, can we just guarantee that? Can we just throw that polls. in for them? I mean, we should, pre- we... we're pretty much like that at this point. Yeah. And the, the, here's the thing with the automatic qualifiers. It is, it can be interesting because this is how the Champions League works in soccer. The biggest leagues, England, Spain and whatnot, they get more guaranteed spots to the Champions League. The difference is, that's a tournament played over a year. You've got like 100 teams involved by the, by the end of it, more than 100 teams, and you play a ton of rounds. It, 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 so there's, there's more involved. But it could mean like, it could make your conference standings mean more. If, hey, the top three Big Ten teams are guaranteed a spot, suddenly that, that, that race for third place is important. You, it, it, because we're getting rid of divisions, you know, we're just going by conference standings. That's important. The difference the tie is the tiebreakers are going to be a mess, though. In exactly. These giant you have leagues. the tiebreakers. You're going to have schedules that are completely not balanced because the conferences are so big and we're playing nine games. And so you're going to have a lot of people complaining about that. So, like, I understand. Also, you have conference championship games still, which 
change like would you get rid of conference championship games you probably need to but conferences at this point or at least some of them don't really want to so these one are, of, these are the them. hurdles that come up when you do these types of things i can see part of the pitch you rely on conference standings more than the rankings but i don't know if that works in college football because of the nature of the sport the shortness of the regular season and all that yeah I, and, and and then what's like the threat here is it like if we don't I'm not to not to put on my conspiracy hat here, but like, is it is it just kind of the implied threat of like, well, we could just go do our own playoff? Well, I I think I think it is because in an implied threat works in this case, right? Everyone's been fearing also, that the yeah. Big Ten and SEC would take their right. ball and leave. Like they've right. thirty four, they've, li- they've literally created teams. a partnership. They, they literally created, created a partnership a couple weeks ago. An advisory group that this was everyone's fear. They also now represent thirty four teams, including a lot of the biggest brands. In college football. So might not I think be done at 34 too. You know, we'll see. Yeah. But this this impl- this this implied threat though, cov- like is is kind of the cloud hanging over all of this. And I think that that was something that people were very worried about going into this meeting and did expect it to be contentious because of that. Because they wanted to know what they want and they want to know how much of that is for negotiating. And then how much of it is, oh, they would actually leave us and like this would not be what's best for college football. So we don't know where they're going to end up because they didn't make any final decisions. Um, but Max, I mean, as you're as you're thinking about this in, in a 14, let's let's look at a 14 bracket, mm-hmm. a 14 team bracket. Wow, that's hard to say. 14 feels like such a weird number. I, I see how it works with two buys or two teams get buys and then you have an additional first round game. Like I, I get that, um, but it feels like such a... a step towards 16 that you would eventually get to. But you, Max, you crunched all the numbers. So you went back through the college football playoff era to date and looked at a 14 team field. So what were your main takeaways as you actually played it out? Yeah. So if you, and I I went back and did this when they first announced the the 12 team field. So this is going to be a six plus six model just because of the, the way that the conferences were before. But, you know, if you look at the last 10 years of what a 12 team college football playoff would have looked like, and you look at the, new or you know soon to be sec and big 10 membership they get a 63 percent share uh, of the bids in a 12 team playoff 75 out of 120 big 10 actually gets a couple more than the sec over that decade but neither of them averages you know four bids a year um and i think you know you go look at 2015 and 2016 uh the sec only gets two and that's alabama and oklahoma so i imagine that's a little bit of a problem for greg sankey if you tell him that you know it's possible 20 percent of the time that they might only get two, he says, absolutely no way, right? So um, if you can't go all at large with a bracket, which I would imagine would would be very favorable for both of those leagues, then you kind of get the idea of them asking for uh, for more guaranteed bids. Now, this is this is what 14 would look like, um, just based on the next two that were left out. Uh, if you look at it, obviously in 2023, those spots go to Oklahoma and LSU, just based on the final CFP rankings. Uh, and that would take the SEC to to seven bids in terms of the their, their membership going forward here, um, you know, over the last 10 years, if you, if you, you plug in uh, two more teams for each of these uh, 10 years, um, the SEC and Big Ten, they pick up 11 of those 20 bids um, and they both average more than four per year. Their shares 61 percent of the field. So pretty similar. Um, but I think obviously the thing that uh, that sticks out when you go to 14. You're bringing more nine and three teams into the field and. Uh, you know, I think that you could argue that that makes everything a little bit less important. And honestly, guys, I mean, I think and I, this is this has come up in conversations I've had in the past week on the TV end. 
isn't that kind of dilutive? I mean, is that really additive? Uh, I, you know, especially if the number is going to stay the same. Um, but like, is is that really going to make the playoff a lot more valuable to be at 14 instead of 12? Here's the funny thing about that, by the way. We don't even know if ESPN wants this. Right. I, I asked Bill Hancock, does because like we've reported the 12 team agreement, it, the terms are there. Uh, and I said, hey, if it goes to 14 or 16, does that go up? Bill Hancock wouldn't tell me. Andrew Marchand, our media reporter, said he, they're not sure either. So like that, that has to be figured out. Too. Possibly it, no. It, yeah. Well, those, those first no. round games yeah, very aren't that valuable. No. Yeah. And they're not that valuable. The first round games right? are not valuable. Yep. And that's where you would have to make an adjustment. Um, by the way, shout out to Northwestern. They would have made the playoff twice in a 14-team bracket over the last right. 10 years. That's right. Um, and Gardner Minshew and Mike Leach in the playoff. I mean, yes. could they have made a run in 18? You know, would have loved to find out. It, it, like, I, I, again, I'm pro-expansion. I've also really, really liked the 12-team model because I think it had a little bit for everything. One other element of this that I'm a little fearful about, I'm going to just say it out into the universe, not to make it happen, but in case it happens. So I think the first two years here are going to be a little bit like trial and error. I think that they could make changes based on things that we see how they actually happen. Like for in a positive direction, I hope that we see how awesome on-campus games are. And then they make the quarterfinal round also on campus, especially because let's say you're Georgia, you win the SEC every year, always get a bye. You never get to host a game in this model. And if you're Georgia, you also then have to ask your fans to travel three different times in a row for the quarterfinals, semifinals, and champ game at neutral sites. So I'm hoping once we see how awesome on-campus games are, maybe they tweak that and that they bring that into the new model. One thing I'm worried about is the best of the group of five spot. I am worried because this has come up with a number of people, that Liberty game last year, and Liberty getting blown out. If that happens again with the group of five champion spot, I worry that they will try to limit access for limit the idea of an an automatic spot because you will see the team that is ranked 12th, right? That would be otherwise in that spot if you didn't have a designated group of five champion spot, which they don't have to be ranked in the top 12 or 14. They are just the highest ranked group of five champion. There's going to be consternation about that, about who gets left out because of that spot. And then especially if that game is a blowout like it was with Liberty, part of the challenge here is a lot of the powerhouses at that level all moved up in this round of realignment. So you don't have the Cincinnati's and the Houston's and the UCF's as group of five teams. So I just worry. I worry that people are going to extrapolate results like that and try to limit access in the new model. Which is why I have long said that the group of five needs to agree to that model as quickly as possible and as long as possible. Because, um, because, like you said, they could. You remember, like when the BCS started, there was no guarantee for non-BCS conferences. Then, eventually, they changed it. They went to Congress about it, and they changed it and said if you got in, if you were ranked in the top twelve, I think it was, uh, you could then get into a. BCS bowl game, like Northern, yeah. Yeah. like Northern Illinois did that one year too. Um, so potentially if we have two years of G5 blowouts and they want to make a change, maybe that is a change. Maybe they say group of five champion has to be ranked at a certain point. I, I, I don't know. 
Um, but look, and if Liberty you look at finished twenty third in the final CFP rankings last year, one spot ahead of SMU, even though they were undefeated. So part of it's going to have to be like yes. the committee S- perception of them as well. Yes, and SMU another one moving up as well. They they were yep. primed to be a top group of five school, and now they're going to the ACC. So um, it is a concern. It's also why I think you'd want to again kind of lock that in uh, as long as you can. This is a very very tough time for the group of five because as we know. It's very difficult to build a team, a roster. You lose your coach, you lose your players now. It's hard to, a couple of years, we build up to a team that makes the playoff because if you have a good year, all your best guys are going to get taken. So it is concerning for sure. Yeah, and we'll we'll actually get into some of that dynamic a little later in the show when uh, Kenny joins us, Kenny Smith from our Alabama beat because that is a uh, coaching staff that took multiple group of five head coaches uh, to be on the staff with Kalen DeBoer. So that's another dynamic that's happening at that level as well. So we'll continue to cover, again, the the format, the size, automatic qualifiers, um, auto bids, governance, who gets to control what moving forward. It's really the battle for the future of college football. And we will continue to cover that. While we've got Chris, um, there has been big EA sports news. There's been a great trickle of news actually here over the last week or so. Um, really exciting developments for fans who are excited for this game to come back. Uh, so, Chris, it sounds like everyone in the FBS is going to be in the game. So tell us what else we need to know. Players can opt into the game, finally, beginning on Thursday. Players who opt into the game and are selected for the game will get $600 plus a copy of the game on the console of their choosing. Uh, some players will also become ambassadors for the game and promote it and get more NIL money that way. Be up to 85 players per team on each roster. Uh, more than 11,000 players expected to be in it all total, including the service academies, which is notable because they aren't allowed to accept NIL deals, but they are expected to be in it as well. Uh, Players are being encouraged to opt in by April 30th to guarantee that they will be in the first roster of the game. If they don't opt in, they will be filled by a generic avatar player. You might remember John Dowd. John uh, Dowd. Famously Barry Bonds in the old MVP baseball game because Barry Bonds uh, didn't want to be in the game. Um, And for players to opt in, they go through Learfield's Compass NIL app. It's the same partnership with one team uh, that was used for the Fanatics Jersey Group NIL deal. And this really closes the loop on the first big NIL controversy. You know, the reason NIL kind of exists now is because more than a decade ago, a couple of lawsuits about name, image, and likeness being used in the game at O'Bannon and, and some other people. EA Sports wanted to pay the players back then. They were willing to pay the players to keep the game going. The NCAA said no. They stuck to amateurism, so EA Sports got rid of the game because they didn't want to keep getting sued over it. Uh, They ended up settling with like 29,000 athletes. Uh, They got like an average of like $1,000 per player. So uh, one step closer, a big step. I pray for the compliance people who need to work with every single player to get them to sign into the game. That doesn't sound fun to set up. Uh, I've already been talking to a couple of them. Um, But yes, exciting. Another step. All 134 teams are in the game, including Kennesaw State, which will join Conference USA this year. 
I'm so excited. I mean, I just, I, you know, yeah, it's it's uh, when you think about the actual execution of uh, 11,000 opt-ins. Um, yeah, it's going to be pretty busy here, right, Chris? Um, but, you know, I think and I know there was a lot of consternation about like, what is the right amount uh, to pay a, a player? Uh, believe me, when I when I've in, in the decade I've been talking to players about this game, I think most many I've talked to would just love a free copy of the game. So I think 600 yep. is kind of cherry on top to in a lot of guys eyes. And I think that you know, you got to remember this is a generation that's been playing Madden and 2K and FIFA their whole lives. So they just want to be in the game. So I, I would I would be surprised if they have a hard time getting opt-ins. I think real names in the game is, is you know, even though um, us maniacs have been doing that forever, um, have, having real names and real likenesses is, is going to be very cool. And, I, you know, Chris, could you do, you do you think that there could be some, you know, like QBs with uh, overly aggressive agents who are like 600 is not enough? Or do you think this will be... You think, generally speaking, everyone's just going to want to do it. It's possible. But again, the biggest players are going to be paid extra to promote the game. Yeah. You know, yeah. so so there are opportunities for these star players, star quarterbacks to get more out of it. Um, you know, something that EA Sports has emphasized, which is very fair. Again, more than 11,000 players in the game. That is splitting the pie many, 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 many ways. Madden, NFL, NFL rosters have like 1,700 players on active rosters at a given time, not counting free agents. So like this is such a larger, larger scale. And for a lot of players, bottom of the roster guys, like this could be their only NIL deal. Well, and, 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 like and you, in the yeah. previous games, you know, the, the rosters were also capped at 70. So it's also bringing more players into the game um, with this new edition of it. Which is going to make the roster management piece for uh, nerds like me very exciting. It's going to make the portal very active. And uh, I think it's going to definitely add some realism to have 85. Yeah, and, and there, there will be a portal. There will be NIL. Don't totally know yet exactly how that is all going to work. And it, like I've seen some people say, hey, players should hold out for more. Is it enough? The different things that you said. And look, there is not a player's union to negotiate this. A, play, a union could possibly get that a little bit higher. Um, and there are EA no also could probably charge out. like 200 bucks for this game and, uh, and people would still yeah, buy it. I mean, the anticipation like, like, for this title is, is ridiculous. Like, like, again, if you just divide whatever number you pull out by 11,000 players, it just, it ends up not being a ton. And like you, Max, every player I've talked to said they would do it for free. You know, they just, they just want to be in it. And so there's not a lot of leverage individually. And I don't think this is necessarily the one for, you know, because players may become employees soon. We got the Dartmouth men's basketball players unionizing. There is a obviously a bigger push for this. I just don't know if the video game is the one that'll do it because there's just not that much. Too popular. Yeah. Ava- well, there's not that much available and, and, and not as much leverage. Yeah. And, and it is important to have those 11,000 players. Like you want to have all of those teams um, and Kennesaw State who's coming up and get to be in it. I wonder um, what is. Are you, you going to build up Sam Houston or Kennesaw? Like, who are you thinking, Nicole? Oh, I, I, I want to defer to you guys. I didn't play. <laughs> I was not a video game person. So, you guys tell me who you're going to play with and who you're going to avoid because I know that that is a thing. But I did not. I did not grow up playing this game. Chris, what's so the like, what's the ideal G five dynasty in your mind? Well, so the way I played and the way my friends always played was you you pick a one or two star prestige program. Mm-hmm. And and you build up from there. You always started with a Mac school or something like that. Back in the day, North Texas 
was like the the cheat code. You pick them, they were a two star program, but they'd always win the Sun Belt. They might have been at at the time, so they they were one to to always go with. Yeah, and so you got you got to find those like mid to lower G five teams to start with. Like I'm trying to think like who could be a good one. Like maybe like um. I don't know what Fresno State would be. They'd probably be a three-star program at this point. Prestige, maybe even more than that. Um, I don't know what Toledo would be, Ohio. Maybe North Texas again. That might be the play. You're in Texas. Recruiting was always a bit easier for them. I, I remember when they first put UTSA in the game, um, That I, I, I had to build up the Roadrunners. Um, and I, create, I created uh, number one overall recruit. Robert Kendici, uh in, in my in the dynasty, and then got him to go to UTSA, and we let him play two ways. I think that was a big deal for him that he could play running back uh, and fullback, and in addition to playing defensive end. So, um, yeah, Roadrunners would be a be a fun one. I, I think that's that, I think that's the that's going to be the real real like neat thing here is um, just how different recruiting portal and all that's going to be within this game, and 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 uh, you know can you can you take your team to a playoff bid? Um, I think that that's going to be Ton of fun for me when I when when this game comes out. I you know I go to the roster, I go to quarterback, I sort by speed. So I got I got to have speed at quarterback, Chris. That's just the bottom line. So to me, it's like uh, you want to build around like Avery Johnson at K State. Do you want to build around um, uh, Caden Salter at Liberty? I think was going to be a cheat code in that yes. game, right? He's yes. going to be ridiculous. Like I but, obviously like Jalen Milrow like, is going to be super fast, but that's cheating, right? right? So Milrow. Because um, we, we had a rule. Byron Brown at USF. I mean, that's going to be a fun one as well. I mean, yep. I think there's a lot of those G5 speedsters I'm excited to build around. Because, like, we had a rule you couldn't play with Terrell Pryor, Ohio State. Mm. That was the team you yeah. were, that wasn't allowed. Because when you have that running quarterback like Mike Vick back in the day in Madden, you just you couldn't do stuff like that. So um, it'll be fun. Again, the game will be fully revealed in May, coming out in the summer. We're going to try to put together potentially some league uh of us here on the podcast and the listeners and try to do something i got to get a ps5 for that to happen uh but we, we will oh no i already bought an there. xbox so you're getting an xbox wait did you <laughs> yeah oh i, I would do Is xbox. that okay? ari's got a <laughs> thing ari's got a ps5 so i thought i had to get a ps5 because of him xbox is way I cheaper i would much rather do that yeah ari ari can get both come on like ari ari will come do it ari yeah. needs to do um Chris, okay we'll, we, fi- we'll figure this out but this is exciting Chris, we appreciate you coming on by and sharing all the insight. Go get some rest and um, go start working on your dynasty for whoever you want to play with. If it's UTSA, Chris, Liberty. are we are we getting mascot mode? I know that's like the most important feature for you, right? I asked them a couple years ago, and they said it was still TBD at this point. Mm, uh, okay, I'm not sure. Fingers okay. crossed. All right, Chris, thanks so much. We'll talk to you again soon. See you guys. All right, uh, we are going to bring on Kenny Smith, our Alabama writer. Kenny, thanks for joining, and uh, sorry for the wait. We had to talk about the college football game. Yeah, that's no problem at all, and I was enjoying the conversation. I was just thinking to myself, you know, what teams would I want to play with, um, you know, what dynasties that I might want to form. So, obviously, being a Georgia alum, that's probably up there on the list, Um Got a chance to cover Iowa, so you know, build up that program, give them an offense. I think would be, I think would be fun to keep the defense and the special teams. And um, I wasn't like a big so G5. creating yourself as the OC of Iowa. I love that idea. I like that right. idea too. Can, and you can make sure you have an Australian punter. So like, as long as you exactly. get that, yeah. 
Exactly. So I'm really excited for the game. Uh, I hear talks of potentially an athletic league. I'm a PlayStation person by nature, but if everybody's hopping on Xbox, I'll buy an Xbox and join the fun. So I'm excited for it. So the one question I had, um, but I want to ask you guys, because I don't know, Chris wouldn't know and they haven't decided yet, but like, who do you want on the cover of this thing? Who do you want to see? I guess you could theoretically do a big NIL deal with the quarterback or someone to put on. You could put a coach. What would you guys do? Max, what would you do? So I've been playing the new Madden game lately. And um, if you do the like career mode thing, when your character goes to the NFL draft, he's like greeted by Dion Sanders, who is like offering to be his mentor. Like Dion, like Coach Prime's already in the Madden game. So <laughs> I think that there's, I mean, I think there's a decent chance that it, that he or Shadur is going to have a chance to get this cover. That's that's not me going off any intel. That's just me like knowing he's got a pre-existing relationship there. I think there's a good argument for for Nick Saban. Uh, there's obviously a good argument for you know Caleb Williams or whoever the top draft pick is. Uh, what, what do you think, Kenny? Yeah, I'll probably lean towards Saban as the choice, and I think of it as college football game kind of mirroring Madden in a way. Like John Madden became the face of the NFL game, a situation where Saban could be like the John Madden of college football. I don't know if he would be as invested as to do all the video prompts and everything that Madden did associated with that. But I like that idea of having Saban on the cover. I also saw a couple of graphics on Twitter of all the Heisman winners since the last game in 2014 mm. as like a compilation cover. So I think that would be dope too. And then Dion would probably be my, my top three. I I think Michael Jr. is the one who gave me this idea, but I also love it. It's kind of like the Heisman winner. There have been so many great players since the game hasn't existed. Wouldn't it be cool if they did regional covers for like the best player in your region that didn't get a chance to be on the cover and you could like collect the different cover? Like, I love that idea so yes. much. I, I think yeah, a coach is the is the easy route. I think Saban or Dion, right, are the easy, easy options. I mean, it's crazy to think the last game they made, which came out in 13, I think Johnny Manziel was probably like the best player on the game. We've yeah, had a lot was, of unbelievable players between then and now. I mean, it's yeah, yeah it's, it's not a Burrow, bad idea. Joe Burrow never got to be in the game. Oh, my God. Can 19 imagine, LSU like, on a video game. Are you kidding yeah. me? And then like put the cigar photo like as the cover <laughs> the next year. I mean, it could be there's a lot of options. So I'm excited to see that. I think that's like the big thing. Now that we know everyone's in the game, we know what they're going to get paid. Uh, we want to see the cover. Um, but we will continue to wait impatiently for that. We're bringing Kenny on because we're finally getting a lot of clarity about Alabama staff. Um, also, some want to talk about portal additions and kind of where the roster is as well. But Kenny, let's start by running down what we know about Kalen DeBoer's first staff at Alabama. Yeah, so as it stands right now, presumably this is the final staff. And this has kind of been like the coaching search from hell because every time you think the the staff is finalized, something else seems to, to come up and he has to go and backfill those positions. But as it stands right now, just starting top and going down the bottom, offensive coordinator, quarterbacks coach, Nick Sheridan, running backs coach, Robert Gillespie, wide receivers coach, co-offensive coordinator, Jamarcus Shepard, tight ends coach, Brian Ellis, offensive line coach, Chris Kapilovich. I hope I said that correctly. Defensive coordinator, inside linebackers, Kane Womack. Defensive line, Freddie Roach, outside linebackers, Christian Robinson, and the two secondary coaches slash co-defensive coordinators are Colin Hischler and Maurice Linquist. So there's some carryover from Washington. There's some uh, carryovers from Alabama and then um, several guys who are brand new. So a pretty good mix. Um, I did a 
somewhat of a staff analysis that will be uh, uh, that's live on the athletic uh, right now, where I just kind of talk about, you know, offensive fits, defensive fits, talked a little bit about recruiting. I feel like that's probably the biggest question mark that the staff is going to have to answer in this new year. But I like the formation of it, especially given the circumstances and the, the calendar, the hiring cycle, everything he had to go through. And um, it's a young staff outside of Kalen DeBoer. The average age of the assistant coach is 39 and a half years old. So really mm-hmm. young staff. That's going to be able to, I think, relate to the players on the roster and be pretty exciting on the recruiting trail as well. So we'll see what happens when spring practice begins. But it seems like finally everything is starting to fall into place. It's it's kind of wild. Obviously, we've talked about the Indiana ties because you've got Kane Womack and and Kalen DeBoer back together. Nick Sheridan as well. Nick Sheridan was a quarterback at Michigan when I was a student there. That was my era at Michigan. Um, so it's wild, actually, to, to see him as Alabama's OC, especially because of all of the intrigue surrounding Ryan Grubb and his departure from Washington and then eventual move to the Seattle Seahawks. So is that the biggest question, Nick Sheridan, in terms of what people are going to want to see? I mean, the overall big question is like life after Nick Saban. But I feel like that's the one um, that I, I would think fans have the most concern and question about, about an OC position and kind of how that's going to work. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think, especially when you think about the continuity and the relationship that Ryan Grubb and Kalen DeBoer had, they've kind of been in this foxhole for a decade plus. And for Kalen DeBoer as a head coach, I believe this is going to be his first year as a head coach, not having Ryan Grubb on staff in some type of capacity. So you think about the trust that he had in him. Ryan Grubb was a play caller at Washington that was expected to carry over at Alabama. The big question for Sheridan and DeBoer is who was going to be calling the plays. It uh, came out last night that Nick Sheridan is going to be the play caller, which is you know really interesting when you think about it being DeBoer's system and how much experience he has. Him not calling the plays, giving it to Sheridan, who has been a play caller uh, at Indiana. So I feel like that's the biggest question mark. But what I would say is I think fans should look at this from the lens of when Nick Saban was the coach, they would change coordinators on both sides of the ball. And the thought was, this is either Nick Saban's defense or it's the Alabama offense. Like the foundation of it isn't going to change. It's the offensive coordinator, defensive coordinator's job to execute that and then innovate within the parameters. So I think that's where I'm looking at it with with Sheridan. It is still Kalen DeBoer's system. He's going to be very involved in what's going on game planning wise. And then from that point on, it's on Sheridan to kind of execute and add his own wrinkles. So I do think that's probably the, the, the biggest question mark. But I think the fact that there's a lot of continuity there and there's a familiarity with the system should put fans' minds at ease a bit. Kenny, I, I thought it was interesting when when Ari had Jed Fish on on the podcast. Um, Jed, you know, bragged that he was able to bring, I think he said, twenty one people with him from Arizona to Washington when he made this move, and that's a, that's a good move for for everybody, I imagine, in terms of salaries and stuff like that. It was very curious to me, um, and maybe not surprising, but it was curious to me that that ultimately, especially after Ryan Grubb and Scott Huff, the offensive line coach, went to to Seattle. That this final uh, Alabama, you know, ten man staff only has two coaches uh, that came came from Seattle uh, in in Nick Sheridan and, and Jamarcus Shepard, who um, Shepard one of the best in the country at his position. Obviously, he was coming. Um, what do you think about the the construction of this staff, like philosophically? Because I, I wonder, there's there's two ways to look at that. Um, one is just that, hey, you know, we're going to the SEC and we maybe we can't necessarily bring all of our boys from Fresno with us, right? We got to hire some guys that can recruit in this part of the country. Or is it just kind of the, this is just kind of the way that this particular uh, cycle shook out with uh, with some of those guys going pro? 
Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. And I think it's important to note that DeVore did try to bring a good amount of Washington people over on the original staff. A lot of the the offensive side was all Washington carryover, except for Robert Gillespie. They did try to bring William Ng over from Washington as well on the defensive side, who ended up going to Tennessee, which is why Christian Robinson is now the linebackers coach right. um, at Alabama. So he did try to have you know a good a good mix and match, but it was just kind of those circumstances. Like I said in the beginning, this was just kind of a really weird coaching search with so many twisted and turns in it, and this is just kind of how it shook out. I do think it was interesting that a lot of the the construction of it in terms of not carrying over a lot of guys, was on the defensive side of the ball. I think Gilboa looks at it from the lens of he's very confident that his offense is going to be able to translate anywhere. And I think the production and the development on offense will be able to sell itself on the recruiting trail, regardless of of where those coaches were coming from. On the defensive side of the ball, that's, I think, where you're really going to need that SEC expertise, the SEC footprint, that southern footprint, people who know the area who can go out and get elite defensive players to um, continue the standard of, of what Alabama is. Because there's a, a huge philosophical shift on the defensive side of the ball. They're going away from the foundation of what Nick Saban's defense has been. Um, and they're going to a completely new system. It's going to be new terminology um, you know, for fans to learn, for players to learn as well. So I think that's kind of where you see DeBoer looking towards the Southern footprint who has experience in this area and how can we kind of, you know, make this a collaborative effort. And I think he did a really good job of putting that side of the ball together where you consider two active group of five head coaches are now assistants on the the defensive side of the ball. He went and got Hisser from Wisconsin, who was a defensive coordinator as well. So a lot of East Coast recruiting ties, a lot of Southern recruiting ties, a lot of Southern footprint. Um, all over that that defensive side of the ball. So that's just kind of the the philosophy in terms of how he put those, you know, two sides together. And it'll be interesting to see what happens this fall. I mentioned this earlier. I do think um, group of five head coaches leaving those positions to work in one of the power two leagues, Big Ten or SEC, is a really interesting development that we saw in this cycle. And Alabama staff is obviously a great example of that. And you had, especially Kane Womack talking about why he did that and his relationship with Kalen DeBoer, but you also have Mo Lindquist um, leaving Buffalo to do this. Max, maybe this one's for you. Obviously, you're you're so plugged in on, on coach movement. Um, is this something that surprised you? Is it just kind of the reality of where this is? Is this where coaches think that this is the path to becoming a head coach in the power four or two or whatever we want to call it versus, you know, in the past, it used to be like, go be a great Mac coach. And you'll get a Big Ten job or like people would look for those types of experiences when hiring. Do people feel like they need to be kind of a big time power conference coordinator assistant now? Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting um, discussion. And, uh, you know, obviously, Ryan Grubb going to the NFL means that college football is screwed. And, uh, you know, every, <laughs> every every single coach wants to do what he did. Right. Um, no, I, I, I think that as I'm sure Kenny can attest, it seems like the King Womack one was essentially like, I cannot tell Kalen DeBoer. No, you know, I think that was certainly one of the first moves he made um, when he got this job was to ask Kalen uh, to ask Kane Womack, you know, do you want to come be the DC here? And uh, I think that relationship and that trust level is is a huge factor there. Um, You know, and, and I think the, the Buffalo one is, is interesting because, you know, Mo linguist is, is very highly regarded. And somebody who moved around a lot as an assistant before landing the head job at Buffalo to replace uh, Lance Leipold. And I, I could see from his standpoint, maybe feeling like the chance to be, you know, co-DC to to to, uh, to have a prominent role at Alabama to recruit 
the best players in the country is going to give him a better chance at a power five job. Like, I think there's probably some truth to that argument. And as you guys know, the funny thing about this is neither of those guys, I imagine, is taking a pay cut to go become an assistant coach at Alabama, right? I mean, the gap between group of five head coach salary and power five coordinator salary is is, is massive. And so, uh, or not massive, but it's it, there, it's it exists, right? It, it, those guys are not making a bad move from that standpoint. I think, to me, the thing that always is tough is, you know, you think about, I know Major Applewhite got, got promoted uh, at South Alabama and you can have some continuity there, but I think that's just tough for both of those coaching staffs, um, especially with how late these changes happen, that uh, some of those guys have to go find jobs because their head coach can't take them. So, so Kenny, let's talk a little bit about the roster. Alabama got a big transfer uh, this week as well. So what else have we learned about kind of the roster construction? Obviously, I think this is a program that's going to be active in the spring portal, um, considering what they lost at the coaching change. So update us on on the state of the roster. Yeah, so um, Keon Saab is the, the big addition via the portal. He's um, instant plug-and-play guy in that secondary, and that's a really big addition because within the conversation of Alabama's roster exodus, a lot of the players that left were defensive backs because that was Nick Saban's position group. So a lot of elite DBs went to Alabama to play directly under Saban, and that's where you saw a lot of the attrition. So Keon Saab being able to come in, stabilize that safety position group was a really big addition. Um, there's still going to be a need at cornerback. I definitely think there's going to be a need on the offensive line. But one thing to note about Alabama's roster right now is that they're under the 85-man scholarship limit. Um, before Keon Sabin, and they got another transfer um, tied in from Washington as well. They were at 81 scholarships. So if those guys are presumably on scholarship, they're at 83 which is a really big advantage going into the spring portal window because there might be other elite programs like a Georgia or a Texas or whoever, but they might be over 85. So they're going to need a lot of attrition to get under the 85 to go and seek somebody out in the portal. Alabama is going to be able to hit the ground running right when April 15th comes. So they are going to be really aggressive in the portal, I think. And, you know, that doesn't even include players on the roster right now who might enter into the portal after, you know, the first spring practice under Kalen DeBoer. So there's going to be a lot of spots on the roster available and they're going to be able to use that to supplement the the roster and bring in some instant impact guys so uh, there was a, a large exodus a lot of the players that left when you look at you know the numbers wise a lot of them weren't within Alabama's too deep so they did lose a lot of depth which is really important and it's needed to, to win a championship but a lot of the frontline starters are, are still in place they're just going to need to to fill in some gaps and they're going to be in a really strong position to do so and Alabama is going to be a destination school um, you know, in the spring portal window. Nick Saban isn't there, but this is still, um, you know, arguably the biggest brand in, in college football. There's going to be playing time available. And, you know, if you're a, a kid at another school and you want to be seen by NFL scouts, and you want to play on the highest stage, and you want to compete for a championship, then, you know, there's few places in, in the country better to do that than, than Alabama. Yeah, absolutely right. And I think that uh, it's going to be interesting, Kenny, as they, as they go through spring ball too. Um, for a new staff, you're, you're assessing what you got. And obviously, you know, on paper, right, it's one of the most talented teams in the country. But I'm, I'm sure after some of the, you know, not just portal attrition, but then NFL draft entries, you're going to have to kind of really size up each position group, um, you know, with with only two retained assistants out of that 10 in, in Gillespie and Roach. Um, it, you know, you're going to get fresh eyes on those groups. And uh, I imagine I could see Alabama being, uh, agree with you, see them being a buyer when we get to uh, end of April here. And uh, I would assume some, some pretty good players uh, hit the market. 
Yeah, definitely. And the spring window has been very good to Alabama historically. You think about Jamison Williams was the the, the crown jewel mm-hmm. um, a couple of years ago. Last year, they were able to get Jalen Key from UAB, who was a starter every game in the season. Trey Amos from um, Louisiana Lafayette, who played a big role in the secondary as well this year. So they've been active in the spring whoa, window. Whoa, before. whoa, whoa, whoa. You left out Tyler Buckner. They got Tyler yeah. Buckner, too. <laughs> and, they, and they did get... Who is uh, now, who's now going to try to win a national championship in lacrosse, by the way, this semester? At Notre Dame. Yeah, yeah right. at Notre Dame. <laughs> Right. So they've, uh, yeah, they've been, they've been good in the, in the spring window and uh, they're going to be able to, to fill some gaps. I think you look at the, the roster, there are certain positions that you feel really good about. Quarterback is a deep room, running back, deep room, tight end, defensive line, inside linebacker. Um, they got, they have talent. Um, interior of the offensive line could be one of the best, if not the best in, in college football, guard, center, guard combination. So they have a good amount in place is just, again, tackle on the offensive line, potentially pass rusher, cornerback, maybe even a kicker. You know, you're losing Will Riker, the all-time NCAA leading scorer. That's a huge hole that you have to fill. So they go through spring practice. Maybe they don't feel great about the kicking situation. Now they have a spot open to to pursue a kicker. So there's going to be um, some gaps to, to fill. And, um, you know, there's also a chance that they go through spring practice and there's maybe some position groups that they feel better about just because they have recruited so well. And there are freshmen who are going to have an opportunity to fill some roles on the two deep that wouldn't be there if Nick Saban was still the coach or in a past year at Alabama just because the roster is so stacked. So this is setting up to be one of the most interesting spring practices at Alabama in a really, really long time. Well, and it's, I think, the biggest offseason story by a mile. I mean, it's what is life like after Nick Saban? It's going to be weird even as I think about like just watching an Alabama game and him not being on the sideline or like, you know, SEC media days waiting to see his takes on the issue of the day. I mean, it's just going to be a totally different world and like world order in in college football. I mean, Max, like you agree, right? This is the the absolute number one thing that you're interested to see. I agree. And um, I, Kenny, I, uh, I'm sure you're already experiencing this. Um, I, I'm going to be very amused from, from, from a distance at uh, how people talk about the expectations for this Alabama team and for Kalen DeBoer in year one. Is that, has that come up at all? Or are you seeing anyone kind of having that discourse? Yeah, no, I haven't seen anybody talking about it at all. <laughs> no, one, no, no, there's, there's nobody out there at the Pantheon saying, uh, you know, Kalen DeBoer would have won a national championship in his first year or he's, he's on the hot seat. But uh, yeah, I mean, the expectations are going to be high, obviously, but, um, I don't think that he is shying away from any of those expectations. And I also would push back on the notion that a 10 and two year would be a down year for them because that would be a playoff spot. And you look yeah. at this, you yeah. look at this, this schedule, 2024, it is way harder than last year's Alabama schedule. They have to play Georgia. They have to go to Wisconsin. They have to go to LSU, to Oklahoma, to Tennessee. That is brutal. If they are 10 and two at the end of the year, how can you not look at that as a success. And if they're 11 and one or, or, or better than that, they're talking about playing for a chance at an SEC championship and a, and a top four seed in the playoffs. So I don't think that, you know, if you're going into this season with the expectation of Alabama is a national championship or bust year, that's probably a little bit ambitious, but I don't think looking at this year as this is a playoff or bust team is out of the realm of possibility at all. Like I said, they still have plenty of talent. They're going to fill those gaps. They have, in my mind, at least an elite coach in Kalen DeBoer, who's proved it at the Power 5 level and at the NAIA level as well. So I'm pretty bullish on, on this team just because of what I foresee them doing in the spring window and just the, the 
the leaps that some players can take in, in spring practice. And another thing as far as Alabama and this new saving era, they're already doing things that are completely out of character for Alabama. For example, Kalen DeBoer sent out a tweet. He was... <laughs> period. Yeah, period. Multiple. Yeah, what it said. He said that. Exactly. Just something as simple as that. He is the first Alabama football coach ever to have an active Twitter and send out a tweet. Just that alone <laughs> is insane. There was last week or, or earlier this week, one of their um, recruiting guys started uh, streaming their, um, you know, their workouts on Instagram live. And there were fans like, I've never seen an, a personnel person at Alabama on Instagram live, much less recording a, a winter workout. So just stuff like that. That's just, you know, getting people, um, you know, excited. Maybe some people are anxious about it because they're like, man, this is like too much change. But, uh, you know, Alabama. Is, You're seeing is, these is, things yeah, that people exactly. fans are like, this would get the last staff fired. I mean, if yeah, they did yeah, these yeah. things. This, yeah. is, exactly. this is something Lane Kiffin would do and get in trouble for, you know? <laughs> exactly. So uh, there's just a, a, a lot going on right now in terms of, you know, entering into a new era of, of DeBoer. There's obviously going to be some things that are carried over from Saban. But, um, you know, DeBoer's going to he's going to do his own thing and he's going to do it the the way he wants to and that's going to be something that's going to take a lot of getting used to from the fan side player side media side but we're all going to be extremely tapped in obviously kenny my last question um and i know this will change and i'll probably ask you a million times before august what is the record or like results for this year that would be concerning like i know what you're saying about like you know they make the playoff whatever that's awesome that's great it's a this is huge turnover so what's like a win total that would be like huh Maybe this isn't going to work or it's not going according to plan. Yeah, I would probably say three three or four losses. I think two is probably the floor. I think okay. that's like you look at, you know, what Saban did in his tenure. I don't think an Alabama team outside of his first year, I don't think any Alabama team lost more than twice under his tenure. I think that's probably the the floor expectation for for this year's team. Again, like you know, really talented. They're going to to be good. You you know, you look at DeVore as um, an elite coach. That is, I think, would be pretty concerning if you look at uh, a three losses, because if you look at their schedule now, that's, you know, one of those losses would probably be Georgia. And then, you know, you start looking at, you know, Oklahoma, Tennessee, LSU, maybe, you know, Missouri is also on their schedule as well. I forgot to mention them. That's going to be a, a tough game. So if they start getting into the point where they're losing three games and not in the playoff conversation, I think that would probably have people a little antsy for a year one performance. You know, guys, let's not forget. Um... Brent, Brent Venables went six and seven in his first year at Oklahoma uh, after replacing Lincoln Riley. Would would we all have to stay off Twitter if Alabama went six and seven this year? Yeah. Oh my God. Like that would just the Twitter be, spaces though. Come on. Like yeah. the fire Mike Norvell Twitter spaces would just be child's play compared like, I, to that. I, I, Alabama fans would have to stay off of Twitter. Everyone outside of the state that, you know, has watched Alabama terrorize their program would be running to Twitter to, to get their takes <laughs> off true. and join spaces and to, and, you know, share their think pieces and, and all of that. So this uh, would create the great exodus <laughs> to threads if this actually happened. Yeah. <laughs> um, before we, before we wrap things up, guys, um, you were, you were talking about the spring portal. Um, there's still going to be a lot of impactful players available. And there's been some interesting moves even in the dead of February. So Max, um, give us some portal players to watch or names to watch, positions to watch, anything anything you've got as we sit here at the end of February. Yeah, I mean, certainly um, with, with everybody getting into spring semester classes and winter workouts and stuff, obviously the portal has slowed down a ton. Um, you've, you've got all the, all the top guys there pretty much have found where they're going. 
Um, the one curious one that's still out there is is James Madison quarterback uh, Jordan McLeod, who is the Sun Belt Player of the Year. Obviously, James Madison uh, had a coaching change, and Jordan McLeod's a guy who's been in the portal a couple times. So curious to see kind of where he uh, winds up, what he's planning to do. Um, SMU has lost a couple uh, starting offensive linemen, Marcus Bryant and, and Branson Hickman, both grad transfers uh, to the portal here recently. I, I imagine you know that that's a position that those guys are going to get a lot of phone calls just because everyone's looking for uh, plug and play starters l- looking for experience at that position. Um, there's still close to 500 FBS scholarship players available in the portal. I imagine a lot of those guys are going to end up at FCS or JCs or something like that, but you hope that they find homes. You know, I think it's obviously it's too early to preview the April window. Um, but I think that there's still, still a couple of schools out there probably looking for a quarterback. And I, I think the, the one that you got to circle is like, what's, what's going to happen this spring that everyone's going to be intrigued by is the Ohio state quarterback room, because, uh, uh, it's hard to have five. It's hard to have five scholarship guys in a room. Um, five guys that uh, were all highly touted, um, and and you know believe they have the 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 ability to be the starter at Ohio State. So, you know the addition of not just Will Howard but but Alabama transfer Julian Sayan uh, to that that situation um, certainly makes things way more interesting for Devin Brown, Lincoln Kineholtz, and for their true freshman Aaron Nolan. So how? New Ohio State offensive coordinator Chip Kelly. I just had to say that. Out loud. Yeah, it to, sounds weird. Sounds weird to say out loud, say right? Hey, and there's a, there's a guy I'm willing to start a dynasty with is rebuilding Chip Kelly's coaching career as the OC of Ohio State. That sounds super fun. But um, yeah, the, I think the Ohio State situation um, is is probably the big quarterback battle that uh, that everybody's going to to have their eye on uh, this spring. You can assume it's going to be Will Howard, but uh, that that no matter who it is, uh, it's going to have pretty serious implications for a bunch of guys in that room. Yeah. And famously um, guys who have left that Ohio state quarterback room have uh, gone on to be quite relevant at other programs. They've done so things. That is true. They, yeah. they have done things. Um, so this is uh, a great little primer as we sit here at the end of February. Um, Kenny, thank you so much for making time. Insight into Alabama has been awesome. Um, we look forward to continuing to read your coverage of this new staff and how the new world looks in Tuscaloosa without Nick Saban at the helm. Uh, Max, thanks so much for for spending time as well. Um, as a reminder, again, guys, you can subscribe to our feed here on the Until Saturday podcast. We got you covered all off season, well, two shows a week at least. Emergency episodes when news happens. You can follow this podcast on Apple wherever you get your podcast. We'd love it if you support the show by dropping a five star review. We'd also love if you left us a voicemail on our phone line or sent us written questions for a future mailbag. Um, But for Kenny, for Max, I'm Nicole. Thanks so much for hanging with us. We'll be back soon.